Discovering your genealogy has been all the rage these past few years, hasn't it? From Ancestry.com to MyHeritage.com, you can send in your DNA or submit names from your family tree and find out information on your descent. My dad did it the hard way in the 1990s. Uh, He personally went to courthouses, searched government records and archives, uh, and more, until one day he stopped in the middle of the project. He discovered that his mother had been lying to him for over 40 years about who his father was. Turns out that uh, his last name, my last name, shouldn't be Law. Uh, It should be Crawford. And like all of us, uh, my dad has a complex family tree. On the one hand, it's a mangled family tree. On the other hand, God's grace in my dad's family tree is clear. And it's clear to him. My dad's one of ten kids. He was born in Columbus, Ohio. He grew up in an area of the city called the Bottoms, because it wasn't exactly the best part of town. Uh, he was a latchkey kid. He, of his uh, 10 siblings, he's the only one who graduated from high school. So it's not surprising he's the only one to go to college and graduate from college. Uh, he's the only one who got a master's degree. My dad was the only one of 10 siblings who did not go to jail. Well, uh, that was true until he became a missionary, a Christian missionary in Turkey, and they arrested him and put him uh, in jail. The Turkish government did. My dad, insofar as I can tell, today is the only one of 10 kids who walks with God. And though they all were taken to church, he's the only one who appears to have any evidence of saving grace in his life. Why was or is my dad different than his 10 siblings? Why at that point in such a mangled family tree was God pleased to produce the fruit of salvation? The only answer that I can give was that God was gracious And if you can believe it, I've left out half the story of my dad's family tree, and I haven't even touched my mom's side. Uh, I'm grateful to God's grace to my parents. Uh, It was the pathway through which he was pleased to reveal his grace to me. And this is sometimes how how God is pleased to work in his world and in our lives. Sometimes a family tree is filled with seemingly endless depravity and darkness, And then God in his grace is pleased to shine a light upon one particular individual. These genealogies that we're about to look at in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, first bit of 6, we meet descendants of Adam. And they're all like their father Adam. They're all sinners. There's a good bit of darkness in these genealogies that we're about to read. And yet, we are also going to see God's mercy and grace. As we look at sin spread and depravity hover over the world like a thick darkness, friends, brothers, and sisters, I want you to understand that God's grace is mightier, more powerful, and more glorious. It overcomes the darkness. In these chapters, we see that though sin and death marches on, so do God's promises of life and salvation. Whatever your family tree might look like, you should be comforted by this truth that God can graciously graft you into his family tree. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's word. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your copy of God's word. Turn to Genesis chapter four. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage on page four. So far, we have studied the first three chapters of the book. And in them, we've learned that God made everything and everyone for his glory. We've seen God generously give, God, uh, give man life and labor and love in a garden sanctuary. And then we've seen man throw it all away through sinful disobedience to God's command. Adam's disobedience, his sin, and his sin nature were then passed down to all of his posterity. That's what we're going to see today. Mankind rebelled, but God responded with a gracious promise of redemption. That's what we saw last week. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we saw God give an amazing promise. God promised that the seed of the woman, a son, would come and crush the head of the serpent. He would redeem ruined rebels. And as we're about to see, the remainder of the book of Genesis, and indeed the rest of the Old Testament, is constantly concerned about offspring, the seed of the woman. So with each newborn son, we're left to wonder, is this the promised son who will fully and finally defeat sin and Satan and death? As Genesis chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6, unfold, we see that what God spoke in Genesis 3 was true. There is conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, these kind of two lines that live in the world. 
It's why we're given different family trees. At first glance, these chapters are filled with an unstoppable descent into depravity. But upon deeper inspection, I trust that you'll see that in these chapters, we see the persistence of God's promise of grace. Which brings me to the main idea for this portion of God's word. Here's what I think this passage of scripture, chapters 4, 5, and the first part of 6, teach us in a single sentence. Here it is. Sin and death march on, but so do God's promises of life and salvation. Through the very ordinary perpetuation of life, the arrival of children, God is working his promises and purposes of salvation out. He's greater than all the depravity and darkness in the world. We'll unpack this portion of God's word in three sections under three headings. Let's begin with our first. I believe there's an outline there in the bulletin if that helps you follow along. But here's the first heading. Sin will spread, but God will save. Sin will spread but God will save. Let's take a look at this section by reading just the first seven verses of chapter four. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter four, verses one to seven. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In these verses, we see that the first family begins to expand, that the two sons of Adam engage God in worship, and that evil, sin, is crouching at the door. Chapter 4 opens really on a happy note, doesn't it? Not one, but two sons are born. Adam and Eve are experiencing the blessing of children. This is a comforting and kind sign from the Lord because he's promised that a seed, a son, will come and crush the head of the serpent. We're taught to hope here in these first few verses. Here's the first sign that God will keep his promise. These boys must have got, brought great joy to the hearts of Adam and Eve. These boys not only arrive, but they're also put to work. As they grow into men, we learn that Abel keeps the sheep and Cain works the ground. Adam and Eve have trained their sons to take seriously God's commission back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to rule the earth and subdue it. This is what it looks like to be a servant of the Lord, to steward his creation to productive ends. Not only do these sons work, but they also worship. They each bring an offering to the Lord from the fruit of their labors, just as we should do. They've been trained by their parents to offer unto the Lord the worship that's due to his name. Children, young people, did you know that this is why your parents read the Bible with you? It's why they lead you to memorize scripture, perhaps even lead you to memorize a catechism. It's why they bring you here for Lord's Day worship, rather than to soccer or to swim or to basketball or to track. They're teaching you of your heart. The Lord is worthy to be worshipped, that he deserves the first and best of your heart. The Lord received Abel's offering, we see here, but he rejected Cain's. Why? There was something deep in the heart that made the difference between Cain and Abel's offering. Abel brought his offering in faith, but Cain only feigned, faked faith. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where we read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith, by fervent trust in the Lord, that Abel offered this gift. Abel's deeds, as we read earlier in the service in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, Abel's deeds were righteous, but Cain's deeds were evil. While gratitude was in Abel's heart, grievous grumbling was in Cain's heart. Friends, the Lord looks upon our hearts as we offer our worship to him. Did you realize that? He cares about what is in your heart when you come and you worship him. He receives worship that's from a grateful heart. He rejects worship that's from a grumbling heart. But then again, a grumbling heart is just going through the motions of worship, isn't it? Cain was very angry about this. Beloved, let us learn from Abel that faith is pleasing to God. And let us learn from Cain that we have no right to be angry with God. 
In fact, anger toward God should be alarming to us. God did Cain no wrong. And he has done us no wrong. Do you see how, the grace, how God graciously warns petulant Cain there in verses 6 and 7? The sinful desires of Cain's flesh are crouching at the door and ready to come out of his heart. Cain's anger will destroy him if he doesn't dominate it, if he doesn't rule over it. But the Lord doesn't just give Cain a word of warning. He offers him a word of welcome in verse 7. The Lord is saying to Cain, look, if you offer your sacrifice with a broken and contrite heart, if you offer your sacrifice in faith, surely you will be accepted. The Lord is saying to Cain, repent and believe, I'm, I'm ready to receive you. Friends, this is what the Lord says to us. He graciously warns us of our sin and graciously assures us that he's ready to receive us. So how will Cain respond? Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 24. Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 24. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and away from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuajel, and Mahuajel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah. And the name of the other, Zillah, Adah, was, Adah bore Jabal, who, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I wonder, as we read those verses, did you sense the spread of sin from Adam to Cain and from Cain to his descendants? This is Cain's family tree. And it's not the happiest of family trees, is it? Especially in verses 8 to 17, we hear an echo of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Like the serpent, Cain deceived his brother Abel and lured him out in the fields to murder him. Just like the serpent lured Eve to that tree to lead her and Adam to death. And just as the Lord came to Adam and Eve after their sin and asked them questions in order to elicit a confession, so he came to Cain and asked him questions in order to elicit his confession. Where is your brother Abel? Sounds a lot like the Lord's question to Adam. Where are you? What is worse, his words, I do not know, is an outright lie. He's the son of the father of lies. Here we're seeing the seed of the serpent emerge in Cain. And those words, am I my brother's keeper? Sound a lot like the deflection that Adam and Eve gave when they were confronted in their sin. Just as the Lord asked Adam and Eve, what have you done? So he asks Cain, what have you done? And the Lord knew it all, just as he did with Adam and Eve. And just as he issued curses for Adam and Eve as judgment on their sin, so he issued a curse to Cain as a judgment on his sin. Just as the Lord expelled Adam and Eve, driving them out from the garden, so the Lord drives Cain away. The point of all of these echoes from Genesis 3 is to confirm that sin has spread to Adam's son. Cain is not the seed we've been hoping for, 
And Abel can't be the seed who will crush the servant because Abel himself has been crushed to death by Cain. Cain, he laments and continues in impenitence and unbelief. And yet the Lord continues to be gracious to him. He sustains his life, even protects it, somehow putting a mark on him, thus warning anyone, warning them, should they murder him, they will face the Lord's wrath. We don't really know what this mark is, but Cain should have seen the mark as a mark of mercy from the Lord. Cain, he moves away from the presence of the Lord, always the wrong direction. We may lament our circumstances and our conditions, but friends, brothers and sisters, let's consider that God has been gracious to us. He has sustained our lives to this day, no matter how difficult our lives have been. Draw near to God. Don't be driven away from him. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. If verses 8 to 16 show us that sin spreads, then verses 17 to 24 show us the multiplying effect of the spread of sin. Cain has a wife, uh, and yes, she was his sister from the marriage of Adam and Eve. Uh, Incest was later prohibited in the law of Moses. It's prohibited today. But in the beginning of the world, these things were necessary for the multiplication of mankind. Whatever the case may be, in verses 17 to 24, we learn about the multiplication of Cain and his descendants and how they mar marriage and multiply in murder. Cain's descendants develop a number of aspects of culture. There's city building, the making of musical instruments, forging of metals, and so on. And while there are these advances which we should give thanks to God for, there are also regressions clearly. We see that marriage is marred in the fact that Lamech, in verse 19, took two wives. Remember, according to Genesis 2, this is contrary to God's design. God intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman. And while the Bible reports polygamy like we're seeing here, even among the people of God, it nowhere commends it. In fact, everywhere we find polygamy, it is universally cast in a negative light. Even here, as we see with Lamech. Just consider what kind of man he is. He's the kind of man who kills those made in God's image for simply wounding or striking him. His retaliation is not at all a proportional response. He even boasts and sings about it. Verses 23 and 24 are often called Lamech's song of the sword. He essentially taunts God to place a mark on him of even greater protection than that which was placed upon Cain. Lamech is a murderer like his great-great-great-grandfather Cain, only worse. So in Cain's line, as I said, we're seeing the development of this line of the seed or the serpent. The deterioration of a city and a community in the two areas that God graciously gave in Genesis 2, in life and love, are clearly distorted. Right? Lamech was ready to take life and ready to taint love. Woe to the city, the community, the country that so destroys life and distorts love, like Lamech. Sin spreads. But sin does not have the last word in this chapter. Sin spreads, but God saves. To Adam and Eve, another son is born. Read Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 now. Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, the seed of the serpent is not the only seed in line that there will be. There will be a satanic line. And there will be a godly line. So here we're being introduced into another line, Seth's line. Seth is evidence, proof, that God will keep his promise to send a seed, a son, to save sinners and crush the serpent. In fact, Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' genealogy is traced all the way back to Seth here. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, we read, To the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Seth, we can surmise, I think, he must have been doing what Adam did with Abel before him. He must have trained his sons and those who came after him to worship the Lord. As verse 26 says, it was during this time which people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is a, another way of expressing fervent faith in God. For people to begin to call upon the name of the Lord is to say that as opposed to Cain's line of unbelief, people began to trust God, the God who made and keeps covenants with his people. This shows us a distinction between professors like Cain, he really professed to love God with his acts of worship, and the profane. To use 
the words of one Christian. While sin does spread, God's purposes and promises of saving a people and developing the line of the seed of the woman still stands. In a growing world of sin, God still saves. And the question this raises for each one of us is, what spiritual line are you a part of? And do others know it? Do people know that you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That you and for it to be known by hope and future on the Lord Jesus Christ. To call upon the name of the Lord and for it to be known by others shows that faith, yes, it must be personal, but it must also be public. Do people know that you've called upon the name of the Lord? Have you made that public profession of faith in your baptism, in church membership, in conversations at work or at the gym, with your neighbors or your teammates? Call upon the name of the Lord and invite others to do the same. The spread of sin is clear in the descendants of Cain. And the salvation of God is clear in connection with Seth's birth. Let's turn then and consider our second point. Death overwhelms, but life overcomes. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 5, just the first two verses for now. Genesis chapter 5, beginning there in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them men when they were created. In verse 5, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 5, we encounter a phrase that we've really seen before. These are the generations of. If you flip back over to Genesis chapter 2, you'll see it in chapter 2, verse 4. This phrase appears about 11 times or so in the book of Genesis. It's a structuring element of the story itself. Uh, Scholars call it the Toledote formula. And so it's structuring what happens. So in Genesis chapter 2, we were told about what happened to that world of bliss and blessing. Right? What followed after that was the account of its fall into sin and its it's uh, mar by, marring by man. And, and here, in chapter 5, the point of this phrase is to tell us, well, what happened to Adam's descendants after him? What, ha- what happened to those who came after him? We learn that they died, and they had other descendants. That's what's going to follow in the rest of the chapter. Here, we're being reminded that though the fall of mankind into sin has happened, man still retains the image of God. Did you, did you notice that? Right? Moses is reminding us of this. Though sin has spread to all mankind because the first man sinned, every subsequent man and woman still bears the image of God. So man continues to reflect God and is dependent upon him for his identity. Man continues to represent God as a steward of his creation. Uh, Man continues to relate to God as his creator and those around him. Uh, Man remains responsible to carry out the commission of Genesis 1, 28 and following. All of this is what it means to be made in the image of God. And all of this man retains even after his fall into sin. And this truth about about man is why Christians have vigorously taught that every human life remains precious and worthy of dignity, honor, and protection from womb to tomb. Murder, as we saw in the last chapter, is wicked, sinful, and offensive to God because it demolishes a precious image bearer. That's why biblical Christians stand against abortion and euthanasia because it's murder. It's the sinful and unlawful destruction of image bearers. Similarly, slavery and ethnic partiality are wicked, sinful, and offensive to God because they dehumanize and dismiss those made in God's image. Moses will once again reaffirm this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. But what he turns to next is a carefully crafted genealogy. I'm going to read this genealogy, this family tree, so to speak. And as I do, I want you to listen for recurring phrases. Look for And listen for phrases centered around death and life. Follow along as I read, beginning there in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. 
Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, what should we make of a genealogy like this, this family tree? At least this, God is true and Satan is a liar. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you can flip over there and see it for yourself. The Lord God told Adam that he would surely die if he ate of the forbidden fruit. And if you flip back over to chapter 3, Satan lied to Adam and Eve in verse 4 when he said, you will surely die. Not You will not surely die. But look at chapter 5, verse 5. Adam, how does chapter 5, verse 5 end? And he died. God is true, and Satan is a liar. And not only did Adam die, but so did almost all of his descendants. At least eight times in this genealogy, we read the words, and he died. It's almost rhythmic. Some have called it the drumbeat of death. And he died. How does that old saying go? Nothing is certain but what? But death and taxes. Friend, unless the Lord Jesus returns, long life. The oldest person that I've ever met that's lived is lived to be 106 years old, but she died. You may live a long life, but you will surely die. Now, you won't live to be some 900 years like these folks did here in this genealogy, because as we'll see in the next chapter, the Lord decided to limit the duration of their depravity on the earth. But I wonder, are you prepared to die? And prepared to die well. What is remarkable is that in our text, there is a man who is clearly prepared to die well, and yet he did not die. You see Enoch there in verses 21 to 23, he's the seventh man listed in the text, In the Bible, seven is often a number of completion or wholeness. Uh, Twice the text tells us that he walked with God. And clearly, this is the reason that God took him to glory. Enoch lived the kind of life that the Lord finds pleasing and acceptable in his sight. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 says of Enoch. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. God. Now, Enoch, this doesn't mean that Enoch was sinless. Now, he was a son of Adam. He deserved to die for his sins. It also doesn't mean that sinners can earn their salvation. It's not as though Enoch earned his salvation and reception into heaven because of, uh, of what he had done. Now, sinners cannot earn their salvation. What this text teaches us is that sinners can walk with God. They can have a real relationship with their maker, And the Lord actually requires it. Did you know that? That the Lord requires you to walk with him. So in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 we read, 
He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So, are you walking humbly with God? Or are you walking against him or away from him? To walk humbly with God is to recognize that we're not only dependent upon him for life and breath, but to recognize that we're dependent upon him for grace, for salvation from sin. Doesn't humble walking with God mean that we recognize that we are in desperate need of his mercy every moment? It means humbly confessing that it was grace that taught our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. It means humbly confessing that it was grace that has brought us safe this far. It would be grace that leads us home. We're told in Hebrews 11 that like Abel, Enoch lived by faith. And so he must have believed God's promise to his father Adam that one day he would send a son and a seed to crush the serpent in order to save sinners. We walk with God today by believing that God's son and seed has come in Jesus Christ. That Christ has lived, that Christ has died, that Christ has been raised, that Christ will come again. Malachi chapter 2 verse 6 gives us something of a practical description of what it looks like to walk with God. There of Levi, we read that true instruction was in his mouth, no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me, he walked with God, in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So according to Malachi chapter 2, verse 6, I'd encourage you to read it more later, but according to that verse, to walk with God means to hold fast to God's teaching and instruction. Making God's word the rule for our walking. Walking with God means speaking words of grace and truth instead of words of deceit. Walking with God means making peace with God and living at peace with our fellow man. Walking with God means valuing his righteousness and turning many from iniquity. So walking with God means, yes, to tell many that they've sinned, but that there's salvation all by God's grace. This is why the book of Jude actually refers to Enoch as a prophet of God. Enoch spoke with his life and with his lips. Do you? Do we do the same? Enoch lived by faith. What about you? After the people standing at your grave say, and he died, after they put you in the ground, what will they put on your tombstone? What about those words he walked with God, or she walked with God. Would you like for that to be your testimony, the testimony of your life? As many have observed, since Enoch did not live like the rest, he did not die like the rest. And that's what struck me most about Genesis chapter 5. Though we are almost overwhelmed by death after death, after death. Almost overwhelming to read and teaches is that death is overcome by life. It's almost overwhelming to read and he died eight times in a single chapter. But did you consider that the references to life outnumber the references to death? And I'm not just talking about the fact that Enoch did not die. So we have just one more that lived. No, if I've, if I've counted correctly, then we read the phrase he fathered 17 times in this chapter. And we also read the phrase and had other sons and daughters at least nine times. That means the chapter holds eight references to death, but at least 26 references to life, and crucially, the life of children, connected to that promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're being reminded that, yes, disobedience does lead to death, but we're also being reminded that the Lord will supply that Savior, that Son, whom he promised. And what's more, while Enoch provides us hope that death will be one day overcome by eternal life. So does Noah. As you can see from Genesis chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, Noah is named, and we're encouraged to hope that relief from the curse of sin and death is on the way. Noah is born. There's this great sigh of relief that takes place with his arrival. Maybe this one is from the promised seed. Maybe he will reverse the curse. After all, Noah's father Lamech, from the line of Seth, is certainly different than the Lamech from the line of Cain that we met earlier in the chapter. Did you notice that similar names appeared in both of these genealogies? Maybe Seth's line, who began to call upon the name of the Lord, will one day produce a seed, a son, who will redeem the world from sin and death. Add to this phrase, there's no actually 
and he died that follows Noah. We're going to learn that, of course, Noah's going to die later. But Moses, he intentionally breaks the pattern, again, for purposely sustaining our hopes. Ultimately, we know that it's Jesus who's the only one who brings relief from the curse. He does it spiritually first, but one day, when he returns and makes all things new, he will remove pain in our toil. Beloved, though we live in a world that constantly marches to the rhythm of death, let us always remember that the Lord Jesus overcomes death with eternal life. Enoch went to be with God. Jesus died and rose again and went to be with God. We who live, we who believe, will die and rise again, so that though we die, yet shall we live. We too will go to be with God. Death is at work in the world, but life is at work in the lives of God's people. Do not give up hope, though death can often bring overwhelming grief. Remember that there is love and eternal life stronger than death. Sin and death marches on, yes, but so do God's promises of life and salvation. We see this in the third and final section of our text too. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, here we're reminded that mankind is fallen, but that the maker shows favor. This encourages our hope. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In these verses, we continue to see the multiplication of mankind. Well, on the one hand, this gives us hope because the promise of the seed remains alive, the promise to defeat the serpent. On the other hand, it gives us pause because with the multiplication of man, so comes the multiplication of sin and wickedness. In verses 1 and 2, we see that marriage is misused again. We saw it earlier in Genesis chapter 4 with Lamech and his multiple wives, but now we see that in these sons of God, how they simply take what they want. Uh, this language of seeing, attractive, and taking is actually reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It's the same language that's used there. You'll remember that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, it was attractive, and she took its fruit and ate. These sons of God are doing the same thing that their first parents did. And I take these sons of God to be human men. After all, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, read a moment ago, Adam is himself called a son of God. And that is who this whole section is about, Adam's lineage, uh, beginning with the Toledot formula in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. So taking these women as wives could imply these sons of God were taking them by force. But perhaps what is primarily in Moses' mind is revealed through those words, any they chose, at the end there, verse 2. It seems most likely that these sons of God were taking wives without considering whether these women might be a part of the line of the serpent or of the godly line of the woman. Perhaps these men from the godly line of Seth were taking wives from the ungodly line of Cain. We've had a contrast between these two lines in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And maybe Moses is returning to relate these two lines to one another again. Continuing the godly line and seeking godly offspring is important because Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that from the beginning, God was seeking a godly offspring. In a mixed marriage of a believer and an unbeliever, when the couple is not on the same spiritual page, so to speak, it's harder to bring up godly offspring in the nurture and admission of the Lord. Believers have been forbidden by the scriptures from taking unbelieving spouses from the very beginning. So young men, hear me very clearly. When you look for a wife, remember Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful 
beauty is vain, it's fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Don't look for the things that the world looks for. Look for what God looks for. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, the hidden person of the heart is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Look for that kind of a woman, a woman who fears the Lord and follows him in faith. The situation in verses 1 and 2 leads naturally to the central concern of verses 3 to 7. Holiness and righteousness are eroding, if not evaporating, so much so that the Lord purposes to limit the duration of man's life. The longer a man lives, the more he can multiply evil. The shortening of his span is a kindness and mercy from the Lord, not only for that man, but for those affected by his evil. Moses tells us the situation of those days. The Nephilim, the mighty men, the men of renown, were on the earth and living wickedly. These men are probably related to the giants. We read about later in the Pentateuch, living in the land of Canaan, when the Lord told Israel to go in and take the land. They were afraid there are giants in the land. Moses, though, is less focused on their size and more focused on their sin and the scope of sin on the earth. Read verse 5 again. It's sobering. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, remember how the sons of God saw the daughters of man? Here Moses tells us what the Lord saw. The Lord saw that man was radically depraved and it did not delight his eyes. Man's depravity was not small and limited to certain spots on the earth. It was great. The wickedness of man was worldwide. And notice too how heart and mind are melded together. Every intention and every thought are described as saturated with sin. Is there any good in man? Apparently, there's only evil. And surely this only evil is for a limited time only, right? No. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, his heart, had become an overflowing, ever-flowing fountain of evil. And this, this is what the Lord saw. If you are to take God's perspective on mankind in the world... It is not that man is essentially, in his essence, good. Rather, it is man is essentially evil. He bears God's image, yes, but he is stained and saturated with sin. It's not as though man is as evil as he could possibly be. But it is true that man is evil in the totality of his being. He is radically depraved. And all of this is echoed in later portions of Scripture. So, in Psalm, chapter four, Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, we read words like, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. If we've seen anything about man in our passage of Scripture today, it's this, that man's desire, man's desires are evil. And so are his deeds. Friends, where do we think evil deeds come from? of Arlington Baptist. This is what won in our hearts. Beloved, uh, members of Arlington Baptist, this is but one reason why the elders recommended we include the words or desire to that update in our church's statement of faith. Any form of sexual expression or desire outside of God's good design, so the desires outside of God's good design, is immoral, sinful, and offensive to God. And Christians who have gone before us have proclaimed the same. So, for example, in the Baptist Catechism of 1813, the question is asked, what is forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? And the answer is given. The Seventh Commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. It's why our Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Where do those evil desires come from? From our hearts says the Lord Jesus. Here in Genesis 6, we see that sinful desires, which lead to sinful deeds, are offensive to God. The Lord, the text says, is grieved by it. Now, when verse 6 talks about the Lord regretting and grieving, we need to make sure that we're not saying God has done wrong in making man. God does no wrong. Some translations use the word repent here, and I think that's probably an unhelpful translation. 
what Moses is trying to do is use human language, language which we use and we understand, to give us the Lord's perspective on the distortion that depravity has wrought on his good world. God is not indifferent to the immorality that is wreaking havoc on his creation. In fact, we're told that this was taking place on the earth, or on the land, verses 5 and 6 and 7, so that we're prepared to see heaven wash the earth in a flood of judgment. All will be lost, but one has been found. Isn't verse 8 wonderful? Isn't the first word of verse 8 wonderful? After a sad, sinful, sorry story, we hear the word, but. That's why every point I've made in this sermon this morning has a contrast. Because though sin and death are relentless, God is even more committed to life and salvation. Mankind is fallen, but God shows favor. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. Let's be clear. It's not as though Noah was looking for favor. As Genesis 6 teaches, by pattern, and Romans chapter 3, verse 11 teaches by precept, no one seeks for God on their own. No, it was the Lord who was seeking one man to show his favor, his grace, too. After all, Noah is not the hero of this story. No mere man will be the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story, and God shows mercy to a miserable sinner in Noah. Goa, uh, God, God's favor, he had to find Noah, or else he too would be lost in that flood of judgment. Is it not remarkable that after we get the deepest and darkest description of sin and death in the world, we get a word of grace from the maker of the world? All will be lost, but one has been found. And that means that not all will be lost, but that in time, many will find favor with the Lord. And this should lead you to wonder, how do I, like Noah, escape the coming flood of God's judgment? How do I find protection and safety from that flood of judgment? You find favor in the sight of God the same way Abel did, the same way Enoch did, the same way Noah did, by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, they all were all... By believing God and trust in God. They had faith. You find favor with God by believing God and trusting his promises in Jesus Christ. Abel, he brought a heartfelt offering of gratitude to the Lord because he took God at his word. God promised he would rescue rebels from sin and death and Abel believed him. In time, God sent his one and only son, the one that Abel was looking forward to. God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was like Abel, murdered by his brothers. Jesus was murdered by his fellow Jews. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word because his blood speaks in defense for sinners. See, Abel's blood accused Cain of guilt. But Jesus' blood speaks in our defense, says the penalty has been paid. Jesus' death was a sacrificial death. He died as a substitute, bearing God's wrath against our sin. Jesus underwent the flood of God's judgment for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. Friend, believe that Jesus died for you and you will find favor with God. Live for God, offering your whole life to him as your spiritual act of worship. Friend, you'll find favor with God if you walk with God like Enoch did. Enoch too believed the promises of God. And in time, God sent his son to walk in the place of sinners and to show us how we walk with God. Jesus supremely found favor in God's sight. Remember Jesus' baptism? How the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Every intention of Jesus' heart was only holy. He only did what the Father told him to do. Jesus is all of our righteousness. So we walk with God, humbly confessing our sins and seeking communion with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Friend, believe that Jesus lived the righteous life that you've not lived, that he died the death that your sins deserve. Believe that God raised Jesus up from the dead on the third day. Believe that after his resurrection from the grave, God received him back into heaven. Believe that one day, either through your death or when Jesus returns, he will come and take you to himself. You'll find favor with God if you believe like Noah that God's judgment is coming and that today is the day of salvation and serving him. Like Noah, trust God and do what he says, even though nobody else in the world does. Friend, turn see that sin and death marches on, 
But even today, you have learned from God's word that so do God's promises of life and salvation. God's grace and favor are available to you today. So believe. Escape being eternally driven away like Cain. Escape being eternally washed away from the flood of God's judgment like the world of Noah. And by believing that you've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to think further about this as we conclude. I don't know what you think of your family tree. Maybe you think it's worthy of judgment. Maybe God thinks that it's worthy of seeing his salvation break in and find you. It's possible that you think your tree is too mangled for God to look on and show grace to. If you looked on my father's family tree, you'd come to that conclusion. But friends, God delights to show grace in the most messed up homes and in the most messed up lives. We've seen it in Abel and Enoch and in Noah. You, you are not out of God's reach. Receive his grace. Receive his son today. For though sin and death marches on, so does God's grace in life and salvation. He is reaching out to you. Will you reach out to him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've considered Genesis 4 and 5 and the first part of 6, oh, we're sobered by the spread of sin. Uh, we see its fingerprints in our lives. We too are guilty and deserving of death. And yet, Father, we give you thanks that you have been pleased to give life to us and to give the life of your Son for us. Father, we pray and ask that you would cause us to find favor in your sight all because of what Jesus has done. He is our only hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.